Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, my name is Andrew Brown. If you don't know me, I'm the youth director here at New Life. And today, we are finally coming to the end of our series on the book of James entitled The Undivided Life. If you've um, just been joining us recently, every time I get the chance to preach, I've been going through a, a section of this book. And so we've been going through it for quite a while now. Uh, I actually just looked it up uh, recently, and we started this series on August 11th, 2019. Um, so a little bit's happened in that, in that stretch. It's just under four years ago that we started. Um, but my hope throughout this whole time is that the Lord has used this series to comfort you, to challenge you, to convict you, and ultimately to point you to King Jesus and how to live an undivided life of allegiance to him. Now, something that I'm sure you don't remember, but something I pointed out on the very first sermon in this series, is that the book of James is not an easy book. It's not an easy book. It's not, it's not that it's difficult to understand. In fact, it's quite easy to understand, but it's very, very challenging to live out, very challenging to put into practice. It's full of these very difficult commands, and it really sometimes calls into question our commitment to Christ. You know, there's another thing about this book that makes it difficult as well, and that's that James can kind of, he just quickly move from one subject to another subject to another subject, often without warning, and you kind of just don't even know how to handle it. And so for one second, he'll be talking about, okay, anger, let's deal with anger, and then immediately, now let's talk about how you use your money, and with just like no transition statements at all. And it's almost Proverbs-like. There's a, a Proverbs-like quality to the book of James. And it can be a little disorienting. It can be a little bit like, I can't catch my breath here because you, you told me about this. And when I'm trying to apply that, you immediately come in and talk about this. And I didn't even have a chance to deal with that. And I think James is aware of that fact. So here at the end of his book, he kind of does the, the preacher's thing where he's like, and now for the last three things to discuss before in closing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The final three things that James wants us to be that will help us live not just an undivided week, not just an undivided month, an undivided year, but an undivided life. So if you have your Bibles with you, can you turn now to the book of James? We're going to be look in chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring one with you, there should be a paperback Bible in one of the chairs in front of you. you pull that out and it's on page 588. 588. I'll give you a second to get there. James 5, 12 through 20. Okay, and now can you please stand for the reading of God's Word? James 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of our Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us through your spirit and through your word, and we pray that you would do things in our hearts that only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so the first thing we need to be to live an undivided life is we need to be truthful. Be truthful. We see this in verse 12 there. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, James begins this final section of his letters, uh, his letter, by using that phrase, but above all, above all. Now, at first glance, this might seem to imply that James thinks not swearing is more important than anything else that he's written in this letter so far. So, it's more important than being doers of the word from chapter one. It's more important than being uh, uh, one who cares for the poor from chapter two. It's more important than taming the tongue from chapter three. It's more important than resisting the corruption of worldliness from chapter four. Um, but I'm going to let you on in a little secret. I don't think that's what he thinks. I don't believe uh, that's what he's saying here. It's better, in my opinion, to understand these words as something akin to finally. Or in conclusion, again, the preacher's thing that they said when they're wrapping up the sermon, in conclusion now, and then they go on for another 20 minutes. In conclusion, it's a transitional phrase, but above all, and it shows we've reached the end of the letter. And just to be clear here as well, when James says don't swear, he's not talking about cursing. He's not talking about using cuss words. He's talking about taking an oath. In those days, uh, letters often ended with an oath. So what would happen is you, you would finish your letter, you'd, you'd say, and now I swear by whatever to say everything that I've said up to this point is true. And oftentimes you would swear by specific things. So I, I swear by the temple or I swear by heaven. And the idea was the more important the thing that you swore by, the more trustworthy your word would become. And so if you swore by your right sandal, for instance, then somebody would be like, well, it's not that truthful. It's not really that important what you're saying here. But if you swore by the gold within the altar in the temple, well, that's a big deal. And so now we know we can trust what you're saying. Now, it's kind of easy to think of that and disregard it. But if you think just for a second, we still hear things like that today, don't we? When you hear someone say, I swear on my honor, or I swear on my mother's grave, or even I swear to God. 
It's still oath-taking. Oath-taking is still alive and well. But the problem with oath-taking is that it implies that some of your words are more truthful than others that you speak. It's, it's when I'm swearing, that's when I'm really being truthful. You see the problem with that? James is telling us that Christians, as Christians, we shouldn't ever need to swear like this. You should be so known, if you're a believer, you should be so known as a person of the truth that your yes to everyone that you meet will always mean yes. And your no will always mean no. No one should ever be questioning whether or not you're being honest or not because you're one who always tells the truth. And truthful people, they don't need to swear by anything. And so the question maybe from this first section for us to consider today, for you to consider today, it's pretty simple. Does that describe your life? Are you someone who is known by your truthfulness? Think about it this way. You might not be known, and this is maybe just an application-oriented question to consider whether this is true for you or not. You might not be known by your truthfulness if people are frequently asking you, hey, are you being honest right now? Are you being serious? Is that really true, what you just said? If people are frequently doing that, there might be a reason for that. Maybe, perhaps, you're, you're being so sarcastic all the time that nobody can tell when you're being truthful and when you're not. Maybe uh, your word is so unreliable that when you say yes, when you commit to something and you say yes, you're going to do it, no one really expects you to follow through. And so you have to say, I promise, I promise I'm going to do it. You have to add those additional oaths because you're not a truthful person. But here's the thing that James is telling us here. This is not how we as believers should be perceived. Our words should be solid. They should be reliable. They should be trustworthy. And ultimately, they should be a testimony to the truthfulness of God. We speak truth because He speaks truth. And our words should mirror and point to the truthfulness of His word. So the first thing we need to live an undivided life is to be truthful. Second thing we need, though, is to be, whoops, one went too far there, be prayerful. So be truthful first, be prayerful second. We see the beginnings of this in verse 13. Look what it says there. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Now, back in James's day, letters would typically conclude with an oath, and then there'd be a blessing from the gods, which usually involved some sort of health wish. So it was something like, okay, let me say my oath, and now may Zeus give you all great health. But here at the end of James's letter, he's going to flip those both on their head. He's going to say, no, don't take an oath at all. And instead of giving you a health wish, he's actually going to show them how to obtain health. It's as if he says, instead of me asking God to grant you good health, why don't you just ask God yourself? And so instead of him praying for them, he takes this time to teach them how to pray for themselves. And the first thing he says here about prayer is that believers should be doing it all the time. Prayer should be a regular pattern in our life. If you're struggling, you're suffering, pray. If you're doing great, then sing praises, which is another form of prayer to God. No matter what circumstance you are in in life, pray. 
A pastor, an old pastor named John Laidlaw, he says it this way, the main lesson about prayer is just this, do it, do it, do it. You want to be taught to pray? My answer is to pray and never faint, and then you shall never fail. Christians should be known not only as truthful people, but also as prayerful people. And that means people should hear us not only talking about prayer, but actually should hear us praying. And so just by way of application, I think one of the easiest ways that this could happen for us as a church family is that instead of saying to somebody, I'll pray for you, why not just stop and actually pray for them on the spot? Pray for them right there. Why would you wait to pray for somebody? They need that prayer right at that moment. And you can do it. I know not every circumstance that's possible, but the vast majority of them could be. So the next time you find yourself texting or on the phone or in person saying, I'll pray for you, get this in your mind and say, no, 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 I'm going to pray for you right now because we need to hear each other's prayers. You need to pray for your brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters need your prayers as well and you need their prayers as well. And so we don't hear people praying for us nearly enough, and I think this would be a good way. Maybe if you can just get that lodged in your mind next time, I'll pray for you. Nope, I'm going to do it right now. And you know, this kind of relates to what James is going to say next, too, about prayer. We should pray in all situations, but sometimes we need some backup. Sometimes we need some additional help. And that's what the next section here is about, 14 and 15. Listen to what he says here. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is a very difficult passage. I'm sure just reading that alone, you're thinking there's a lot of questions that come up in your mind. If there's not a lot of questions, look at it again, because there's a lot of questions that should be coming up in your mind. And several of them we're just going to address here, one right after the other. The first question that comes up in my mind is, Should you call the elders every time you're sick? Should you call the elders every time you're sick? Well, James has just said in verse 13, if you look at your Bible there, it says, if anyone is suffering, let them pray. But now in verse 14, he tells the sick person not to pray for himself, but to call on the elders to pray. So in James's mind, there's obviously some sort of distinction here between this sickness and just the general suffering that he talks about in verse 13. And so I, what, what I think is happening here is James is using the word for sickness to refer to a serious illness. The sick person has probably already prayed for themselves many times and they have not been healed, and so now they are calling on the elders. You know, look at this um, notion here that he says that they have to call on the elders. There's a possibility and maybe an implication of that is that this sick person isn't able to go to the elders. They have to call on the elders to come to them. And that would show the level, the severity of the sickness. But notice also here that it's not the responsibility of the elders to do this. It's not the elders calling on the sick person. It's the sick person calling upon the elders. James says, let him call the elders. The sick person is the one who calls the elders. And that's important because this is an act of faith by this sick person. This is an act of faith that anticipates an answer to prayer. This is not a last resort. I think sometimes we think about this as like a last resort. Well, I've tried everything else. 
So I might as well call on the elders as well and see if their prayers are more effective than mine. That's not what's happening here. In fact, that's actually the kind of prayer that James condemns in chapter 1. If you go back and look at chapter 1, he talks about being double-minded in your prayers, you know, trying to cover all your bases. That's not what James is telling us to do here. A pastor named Kent Hughes, he talks about this passage this way. The sixth person's calling for the elders is the subjective sense that this is what the Holy Spirit is directing him to do. We must realize it is not always God's will for a sick person to call for the elders to pray the prayer of faith and be healed. For ultimately, we will, ha- we will all have a sickness or a trauma which will result in death. Our calling for the elders must not be on a whim. Sure, I'll try anything, but with a definitive sense that this is God's will, or for want of a better, better expression, a sense that calling for the elders is right. So the answer to the first question is no, you should not call the elders every time you get sick. I'm sure some elders are breathing a sigh of relief right now. Uh, It should only be done in a serious situation where the sick person senses that God is leading them to call upon the elders and they actually believe that their collective prayer will bring him healing. Okay, that's question one. Question two. Are elders' prayers more effective than everyone else's? And you know, that kind of first question kind of leads right into this question. If you're seriously sick, you might just be thinking, why, why call the elders? Why not call your life group? Why not call your equip group, your, your best friends at the church? Why the elders? Well, first of all, this is clearly not saying, uh, just, just to make this clear from the jump, that elders have special access to God that other Christians don't. In fact, the very next verse, James commands all believers to pray for one another. So look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So James is commanding everyone in the church to pray for one another. Some people have said that this is uh, James' idea of preventative medicine. That the whole church prays together, this is preventative medicine, a church-wide prayer program. But after this, to continue on in verse 16, James keeps going and he makes it clear that anyone, and not just the elders, can pray with great power. It's almost as if James was writing this and then he thought, oh yeah, somebody might say that only the elders have special prayer, so I better write about how that's not true. And so look at what he goes on to say. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You know, it's really sad to me how many people hear that verse and completely misunderstand what James is trying to say. Many people read this and they go, Elijah, oh yeah, well he's kind of like a super believer. He's kind of like way outside the realm of you or I. And he has special power and special privilege with God. And so they read this passage and they put a heavy emphasis on that word righteous right there. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. And so they hear this and they go, okay, well, I got to go find a righteous person to pray for me. That's what James is telling me to do. Go find someone more righteous than myself and have them pray for me. And maybe... That's the elders. So I'm going to go find the elders, the righteous ones at our church. That's almost the exact opposite of what James is actually saying here. It wasn't Elijah who stopped the rain. 
but the God whom Elijah appealed to. In a sense, you could say the power was in the prayer, not the person. And that's what James explicitly mentions. That's why James explicitly mentions that Elijah was just a man with just a nature like ours. The point is not finding Elijah to pray for you. The point is rather you are like Elijah. So pray. Pray like Elijah prayed. If you think about it here for a second, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you are righteous. You are a righteous person. You have been given not just the righteousness of Elijah, but a righteousness that exceeds Elijah's. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are a righteous person if you have trusted in Christ. And so the point James is making is, believe that about yourself. That's part of the gospel, but believing that you are a righteous person in Jesus, and now, after you have that belief about yourself, pray. Pray in confidence. Pray in boldness. Expect power in prayer because of the God whom you are praying to. Because the God whom you are praying to loves you and he has great power. So the answer to this second question is also no. Elders do not have a special effectiveness to their prayers. But there is a reason why someone would call the elders when they are especially sick. And that is because the elders are the ones who are appointed by the church to oversee the spiritual well-being of the congregation. And so an old Puritan, Thomas Manton, he said it this way, a sick person should chiefly be thinking about his soul. If anyone is sick, the apostle does not say he should call the physician, but the elders. Physicians are to be called in their place, but not first, not chiefly. Sickness is God's messenger to call us to meet with him. When's the last time you thought about sickness like that? Sickness is God's messenger to call us to meet with him. Do not do as most people do and send for the bodily physician and then when they are past all hope and cure for the minister. So the elders are called to pray because the sickness has brought spiritual realities to bear on the one who is ill. And the elders are the ones who have been called on by the church to lead in this regard. And you say, well, how are they to do that? Well, obviously with prayer, through counsel at that moment, if somebody's uh, approaching death, a a pastor's a great person who can help them with spiritual realities in that moment. But there's one more thing that James talks about, and that's the anointing oil. So that's the next question. What is up with this anointing oil? Does anointing oil have some sort of special healing properties? If you go back and look at verse 14, this is what it says. If anyone among you is sick... Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So this, it just seems like a really strange thing for James to bring up here. Why talk about anointing oil at all? Isn't the prayer alone effective enough? Uh, It almost seems as if James is applying some sort of uh, magic to the anointing oil. That is some sort of magical properties. And so what does all this mean? Well, there's a variety of views about it, actually. Uh, Some people think that the anointing oil is supposed to act like a prop 
that's uh, to enhance your faith. So there's some reason for believing that. Something like Jesus, when Jesus took mud and put it on people's eyes and then he would heal them. Did Jesus need to use mud? Of, Of course not. He didn't need to use the mud and yet he's using almost a prop for the sake of the person that he's healing. And so perhaps anointing oil is something like that. Others believe that that various oils do have healing properties. And so what James is calling for here is to add some medicine to the prayer as well. Medicine is to accompany prayer. Catholics in particular, they believe that this calls for um, something called the sacrament of extreme unction or last rites where the priest will come and prepare a dying believer for heaven by forgiving them any last remnants of their sin. I definitely don't think that that's what's happening here though. I think it's best to look at this oil in a symbolic way. Anointing oil is actually used quite frequently in the Bible. It happens, it comes up a number of times. Moses anointed Aaron to be a priest. Uh, Samuel anointed David with oil to become king. Even Jesus himself was anointed with oil by Mary Magdalene before his crucifixion. And so I think it's, it's best to understand this as anointing oil symbolized setting someone apart for special service or special attention. And that seems to be what James is calling for here as well. Anointing someone with oil symbolizes that they are being set apart for God's special attention. Lord, think of this one in particular at this moment, please. That's what we're asking. That's why we're anointing them with oil. A theologian named Peter Davids, he talks about it this way. Anoint the sick person with oil as they pray, so their prayer is not only heard, but physically felt. The important fact is that the prayer is to the Lord, and the anointing oil is done in the name of the Lord. It is the Lord, not the power of the prayer or the oil, who will raise them up. So again, you might have anticipated it, but the answer to this question is also no. The power is not in the oil itself. But if you go on in the passage and read the very next verse, you might say, though, okay, it's not in the oil, but the power is in the prayer of faith. And that will lead us to the next question. Does God always heal those who pray in faith? I think most of us, when we hear that initially, would say, of course not. We've all had experiences where we prayed and we seem to pray with faith and God didn't heal someone. So our initial answer to that might be no. And yet, look carefully at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. It does not seem like an optional sort of thing, like maybe God will do that or not. It seems that if somebody isn't healed, then we didn't pray the prayer of faith. But I don't think this means that if someone isn't healed, then you didn't have enough faith. It's a really important thing to consider. Or that your elders didn't have enough faith. I think James is using this phrase in an almost technical sense, the phrase prayer of faith. Remember that this isn't just any kind of prayer. This is a very special circumstance. It's a gathering of the elders. There's anointing oil. Somebody's very seriously sick. So this is a special kind of prayer. And I think the prayer of faith is different than praying with faith. I'll say that one more time because I know it's a little confusing. I think the prayer of faith is different than just praying with faith. And one of the reasons I believe that is because we have several examples in the Bible where the apostles themselves, who surely had the most faith of anyone you've probably ever met, they cannot heal certain people. 
Paul, for instance, can't heal his own thorn in his flesh. Or another example is from 2 Timothy 4.20. This is Paul speaking. He says, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Why doesn't Paul just pray the prayer of faith over Trophimus? Why leave him behind? Why not just pray for him to get better? Paul surely had enough faith for that, right? Well, it seems clear to me from this passage and others that just having enough faith is not the determiner of who gets healed and who doesn't. God answers prayers according to his will, and at times he will choose a path for you and I other than healing. He's going to choose something else other than healing, no matter how great our faith is at that moment. So I don't think James is saying having enough faith will require somehow God to heal us. But I do think what James is saying here is that occasionally God allows people to see into his will and he gives them assurance that he will answer their prayer. A theologian named Douglas Moo, he says it this way, prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing, but only when it is God's will to heal will that faith be present. So I think what Moo is saying here is that the prayer of faith that God occasionally gives to people is as much a gift as the healing itself. Both are sovereignly ordained by God. And so the answer to this question is also no. Okay, now to kind of we answered some of those questions. There actually are more questions there that might come up in your mind. And so if you had another one from this little section, come talk to me afterwards. I've studied this passage a lot. Just didn't have time for everything, all the questions that could come up. But the overall point of this section is that if we're going to live an undivided life of allegiance to Jesus, then we must become people of prayer. Prayer must be a way of life for us because we can't do this on our own. We need God's help and we need the help of one another as well. So the second thing we need to be to live an undivided life is to be prayerful. The third thing is we need to be watchful. Be watchful. We see this in verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James finishes his letter by admonishing us to be on the lookout for brothers and sisters, to be watching over one another. Not as fault finders, we're not to be watching over one another as fault finders, we're to be watching over one another in genuine love. When we see someone from within our midst wandering from the truth, you and I are called to pursue them in love and to bring them back into the fold. Now we've seen throughout James's letter that you can actually wander from the truth in two different ways. You can either wander in belief or in action. You can wander from true doctrine and you can wander from true obedience. And so when we see our brothers and sisters headed down that sort of path, we need to be compassionate and courageous enough to confront them. Now, this isn't going to be easy. Uh, hopefully it's not something that's done frequently. It's going to require great wisdom, great tact. And thankfully, God did not leave us without some sort of direction in how to do this. Book of Galatians, Paul talks about this similar thing. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
So we're to restore, we're to go after people in a spirit of gentleness, being careful that we are also not falling into sin ourselves. This is a really important posture to take towards people because the truth is most people don't want to be confronted by their sins. Most people don't want to be confronted by the sins and a lot of people will get defensive and angry when you do. And some people will reject your attempt to help them all together. But a few people, a few people will hear, they will respond, they will repent, they will turn back to Jesus, they will have their sins forgiven and their souls saved from death. Douglas Moo again, he says this, not only should the readers of James do the words he has written, they should be deeply concerned to see that others do them also. It is by sharing with James the conviction that there is indeed an eternal death to which the way of sin leads that we shall be motivated to deal with sin in our lives and in the lives of others. Eternal death is the path that the wanderer has begun walking down. And you know, if you think about this for a second, you should be familiar with that path. You know that path as well because it's one that you've walked down in your life at some point too. But here's the thing. Somebody pursued you, right? Somebody loved you enough to come after you, to take you by the hand and turn you around. Someone brought you back from your wandering. Somebody saved your soul from death and someone covered a multitude of your sins. Believers in Jesus Christ, we go after one another because someone came after us. Jesus came after us. We are called to live an undivided life. We're called to be truthful. We're called to be prayerful, called to be watchful. But if we're being honest, we don't always live up to that standard, do we? And that's why Jesus came after us. That's why he came after us. That's why he rescued us. The good news that we celebrate this morning is that Jesus himself was always truthful. He was always prayerful and he was always watchful. You see, the undivided life has already been lived. It's been lived by Jesus Christ. And he offers you his life. He offers you his life on your behalf. He lived on your behalf and he offers you his life. And he now calls you calls you to follow him, and he empowers you with his spirit to pursue him down this path. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you sent your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming after us, for pursuing us when we have gone astray, for the hundreds and thousands of times that we have walked away from your commandments. You didn't let us go And Lord, we're so grateful for that. I pray that you would help us be people who are on the lookout for others, that we would care about others as much as you care about us. And you would help us to pursue them in love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.